You know what's helped me over the years? To know I'm not the only one thinking about working it out. Sometimes you can get this isolated mentality that you're the only one. You're the only one thinking about it. You're the only one dealing with the stress. You're the only one dealing with the circumstance. And then you find out that no, 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 no. Before you even ask, he's working it out. He knows what you need. He knows he's working all things together. And so whenever I don't understand whatever, I'm in a spot, I go, he's working more things than I can understand right now. You realize God's creativity is bigger than yours. He's worked out things in my life that I would have never thought about putting them together. But when he says he's working all things together for good, that means he is literally working all things. So whatever you're in right now, whatever thing you're walking through right now, if it seems like it's on pause, if it seems like you're a little behind or whatever, just remember he's working all things. So sometimes working all things is not a quick solution. Amen. He's working all things for good. So I'm thankful. That's kept me over the years. And I'm thankful for that. We are starting. First of all, I want to say welcome to uh, everybody watching online. I had a really cool experience uh, this week. In case you didn't know, if you're online, in case you didn't know, we're hillbillies in West Virginia. That's where we are. We're in Hedgesville, which most people outside of Hedgesville can't even pronounce that. So we're in Hedgesville, West Virginia, and um, we're just here in Hedgesville, West Virginia, trying to love God and uh, pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, love each other. So every now and then I get a glimpse of how far and wide God takes his message. And so uh, I think it was Wednesday, a guy stopped in our church from Chicago, never met him before. He's friends with somebody else here just walked through a really serious health situation in his life, started watching us online and then shows up at the church on Wednesday from Chicago. Now, in case you didn't know, I'm not famous. I'm Chris from Hedgesville. And so I have no idea. I'm like, Hey man, I remember there's 40 people sitting here and half of them are my family. And so I'm just standing in front of this guy. He's like, I can't believe I'm here. And I'm going, It's not that impressive. Trust me, hang out for a little bit. Uh, But it's just a testimony of how far God can take things. You know what I you know what I mean? So you got a really good church. You're you you are a really good church that is sending the gospel far and wide. And that's exciting. You should be excited about that. Because I'm just a whatever. And I'm going, I don't know what you want from me, but I'm not, it's not that great. I'll introduce you to my wife. She can fill you in. It's not that great, but <laughs> you won't tell everything. Um, I want to say welcome to all those. We got people for Dietrich fire department watching every week, um, just all over the place. I want to say, I'm thankful that the church is, uh, is bigger than what we know physically. Amen. Also thanks for, uh, Berkeley Springs is a great church and doing a great job up there reaching people. So welcome, Berkeley Springs. And um, I'm excited. I think think the church can be, the church has a grand opportunity in our our age. Uh, But we, there's a a couple of adjustments we need to make to take advantage of it. And 
And I want to start that conversation today, especially on July 4th, when we're celebrating being the freest people on the planet. Uh, Listen, I've been to a lot of places and I'm telling you, there is no place as free as we are. You can watch the news and and listen to all the crazy stuff, but there's no place on the planet. I just got back from three weeks in Africa. There's no place on the planet as free as we are. When I think about that, I think about the responsibility that comes with that freedom as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, the responsibility that we have to use that freedom to benefit the world. And we're going to lean into that a little bit. We're going to, we're going to look into the book of Nehemiah for the next four or five weeks. And, um, and we're going to look into what it looks like to see things change. And so if you will turn to Nehemiah chapter one, I'm going to read a decent amount, verses 1 through 11. Then we're going to skip down to chapter 2 and verses verses 1 through 5. So we have a little tradition here at our church. We stand for the reading of the words, so if you don't mind doing that. And then you can find the words on the screen or in your phone app, or if you brought um, one of those old-school analog Bibles, you can find it there in Nehemiah chapter 1. Say amen if you're ready. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev. In the 20th year, I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. That I... Now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Chapter two, verse one, in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins 
and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for every blessing we've received from you. We thank you for this free country we live in. We thank you for the prosperity that you have poured out on us. Lord, we pray that we'd be moved today. Not just emotionally, Lord, but physically moved today. To do something about something. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. The book of Nehemiah is the last narrative of the Old Testament. If you're looking at the Old Testament time frame, the book of Nehemiah is the last uh, narration of that period of time. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are, are put together. So you get a complete story. If you go about 140 years or so before this book, you get the story of the exile. The, uh, the God's people had turned against him, and this was the final uh, nail in the coffin, if you will. He had, he had chosen Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to lay siege to Jerusalem and they tore down the gates, tore down the, burned the gates, tore down the walls, and they exiled the people of Jerusalem into Babylon. Uh, if you read the book of Jeremiah, you see prophecies about this and, and how the people are supposed to live. Jeremiah told, uh, the Jews, Hey, when you're, it's going to be 70 years. This is the punishment for turning away from God. 70 years of exile. So when you go to Babylon, plant gardens, have kids, raise families, bless the city. If you, if you bless the city, then you'll be prosperous even in exile. They destroyed the temple, the Babylonians, they destroyed the walls around Jerusalem. Now we're in what's called the post-exilic period. We're, we're past the 70 years of exile. And so what had started happening was uh, different kings of Persia had started sending remnants back uh, into Jerusalem. The, in the book of Ezra, you find out that they had rebuilt the temple. But now we're in Nehemiah, and what we find out is that while the temple had be, been rebuilt and portions of the wall had been reconstructed, the city wall had not been fully uh, put back to place and the gates had not been in place. So this is not Hedgesville. This is not like leave your doors open territory. This is not, um, this is a super safe place to live. If you were going to be a prosperous city, if you were going to be a secure city, you had to have a wall with gates that were able to withstand enemy attack. And so this would have, this would have been a very, a serious issue as far as the security of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is in an extremely peculiar position. Nehemiah will act somewhat as a prophet, but he's not a prophet. He is actually in a high-ranking position in a pagan culture with a pagan king. And the king of Persia, the greatest empire in the land at the time. And so Nehemiah holds this top-secret security clearance. He's the cupbearer. He's in close proximity to Artaxerxes. He, he's the guy who's going to take a little sip. Wouldn't that be a nice job? 
Some of you, maybe not so much. Um, but he's taking a little sip every time. Passing to the, he's in close proximity to the king. Uh, something else notable about uh, Nehemiah is he more than likely was a eunuch. So he didn't have a family. If you need to Google that, do it after the service. Um, but so he's this man in a, in a, in a peculiar position in the nation of Persia, in the empire of Persia, beside the king, he's got all kinds of access. We know a couple things about Nehemiah, that he was good natured, good spirited, because he said he had never been sad in front of the king before. This guy took his job serious. It didn't say he wasn't sad. It said he'd never been sad in front of him. Some of you know what it's like to suck it up and go to work. Amen. Some of you walk in sad every day and you wonder why there's no promotion, but that's another sermon. Um, so Nehemiah goes in, he says, never been sad in front of the king before. And he's just, he's a guy who takes his job serious. I'm going to present a good look in front of the king. And so he's been doing this. He's got a reputation. Nehemiah starts out this record record of the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem with this visit by his, one of his brothers and some of his associates, they come to Nehemiah and Nehemiah says, Hey, tell me about Jerusalem. What's going on? This is not good. Now the description they give him is more of a description of the original state. Nehemiah, you know, the walls were torn down. You know, everything was destroyed. You know, the gates were burned. The state at this current time was some of the walls had been rebuilt, but but the Jews had been in this kind of on again, off again relationship with God. Even when they moved back into Jerusalem, there was some difficulty with their relationship with God. So things got paused for a bit. So they're, they're recalling to Nehemiah, Hey, it's still busted up. It's still bad. Nehemiah has an un-American response to this. And I say that because we, in American culture, we've been so desensitized to suffering that, that we could hear, hey, they just shot up the place. They go, really? What time do you want to go to lunch? Nehemiah hears about the suffering of the city, about how unsafe it was, how in, in disarray it was, how the walls were symbolic of being secure and prosperous. And he immediately goes into mourning over this issue. Matter of fact, he said he prayed and fasted for days. And it was uncharacteristic of him to be this upset about something. Because the next, the next thing we find out is the next time he's in front of the king, the king says, Nehemiah, you're usually a good spirited guy. What's, what's going on? He said, you're not sick. And by the way, if you were sick and I'm drinking after you, that's another issue. You're not sick. You're just sad. This has to be something, it's something you're concerned about, something in your heart. What's going on? And he says, hey, this is what I found out. One of the issues that scares me about the modern day church is that there's, there's not a lot of things that make us sad. I can remember pivotal times in, in, uh, Beth and I got married in 1996. And so, um, for some of you were kids, for some of you, you're like, Oh, that explains everything. I can remember pivotal times 
when we would see the news and it would be absolutely devastatingly shocking. Anybody remember times like that? Where when you turn the news on, you thought, I never thought. I remember Columbine right after we got married. Do you remember that? I remember coming home and sitting on my bed and praying with tears coming down my face. God, how could this happen? How could this happen? Now we don't even blink. Can we be honest? It happens. We see it on the news all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. I remember 2001, 9-11. I remember thinking, Dear God, I remember being at a, at a golf tournament for missions for, we were raising money for missions and, and remember just the shock on everybody's faces. We went into the clubhouse and we just prayed, God, how could this happen? Real sorrow was in our hearts. And, and I want to propose to you that Satan has done something masterfully in the church that he's caused us to be so desensitized to every ounce of suffering in the world that we no longer mourn for anything. We have been so decent. Social media, we watch things on our phones now that we couldn't imagine watching 30 years ago. And we're like, oh. I'm not saying I want to go back to the old. I'm, trust me, I'm not the... Boy, back when we were real church. I'm not that preacher. But what I'm saying is Satan has done this master stroke where he's desensitized us to it. And then he switched. Then he's caused us to move from, oh God, how could this happen? That was Nehemiah's first response. How could this still be going on? To the point that he would pray and fast for days. So what we did is first he desensitized us 24 seven news, social media, everything just we're the desensitizing of a whole culture. And here's the problem. We're the most, we're the most equipped culture to fix most things. No, no, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about our politics. I'm not talking about our culture. I'm saying he has blessed us with so many resources. Mm-hmm. And here's what he did, desensitized, and then he moved us. Um, the first service wasn't very offended by this, but I don't know. I'm going to say it anyway. He moved us from mourning to self-care. Doesn't self-care feel good? You know, I'm, in case you follow me on Instagram or something like that, I'm sorry. I don't post anything. I don't want you to know what I'm doing. It freaks me out. So, but what I do is I see on social media, all these people that I can follow, I can even pay them, which still boggles my mind. I can even pay them to tell me how to be happy with me. And, and tell me how often I should be at the beach and how often I should be getting massages and how often I should be just self-care days. You know, the most important thing for me is to be happy. Actually, the most important thing for you is for me to be happy. 
Do you realize that? That's where our culture is. Satan did this master stroke. He didn't have to take us out of church. Listen, COVID didn't kill the church. We killed it. COVID didn't, did, COVID didn't, the church is still the church. Satan had done this before COVID ever happened. He was able to desensitize us and move us from, this is what suffering looks like and this is what we should do about it, to over here, I know that's just part of the world, and, but, if, but the real answer to suffering is for me to be happy, for me to be good with me, and for me to be, have self-care. You know, eight hours of sleep is the most important thing you could do. Really? Come on, you need your sleep. Amen? Yeah, I knew you would think that. It's really important. And the the healthy eating. I'm I'm for healthy eating. I really am. Mixed with a lot of ice cream and bacon. I'm 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 for healthy eating. But listen to the conversation that we've started. There is not less suffering in the world, but there's exponentially more focus on ourselves. Can we say amen? There is no less suffering today than there was a hundred years ago, but there is exponentially more focus on my needs versus somebody else's. This is something we have been duped by that the best thing for us in the church is to just like, like I need you to feel good about yourself. By the way, there is no scripture in the Bible. I've read the whole thing that tells you to focus solely on your own well-being. If that was the case, the apostles would have gave up day one. Paul would have never followed Jesus because on the road to Damascus, Paul gets blinded, thrown down on the ground, and all of his buddies are looking like, what is going on? And he hears a voice from heaven, the voice of Jesus himself. I will show you how much you have to suffer for my name. Can I just let you know that's not a calling to self-care? That's not a calling to, Paul, make sure you get your sleep, man. You're a little cranky. Paul would later on be able to contextualize his life while he's in Rome in chains by saying, don't be embarrassed about this. This was the plan of God from the very beginning. This is to advance the gospel. This suffering you see me in is nothing to be ashamed of. That's why he could write in Romans 6, glory in suffering because suffering produces good things in your life. This whole self-care thing produces nothing but self. So all of a sudden, when we read scripture, we realize that the key to suffering is more suffering by someone. It's sacrificed by someone. The answer has never been, we fix suffering by focusing on ourselves. The answer has never been an inward focus. When more suffering happens, I just need to make sure it's not me suffering. The gospel response to suffering is always sacrifice. It's always somebody giving up what they could be doing to go do something better, more productive. So Satan has done a great job of it. We have have church seminars about how to just be whole and and for the best thing. The best thing for you to do is to be able to just give out of your fullness. Except Paul wrote when he went to Asia They were suffering. They had despaired life itself. They thought they had the death penalty. But bless, bless me to God that he, he overcome, he overcame death. So he's duped us. 
And now there's a whole generation of church where our comfort is the most important thing. And so what we do is we spend our liberties, we spend our liberties, our freedom, and our prosperity not on the things that bother God, but the things that bother us. And we have spent ourselves into oblivion on our own comfort. I know you thought this was going to be a patriotic sermon. We're going to get there. I want to ask you this morning, what bothers you? (laughs) When we go to the doctor, the first thing we're asked, how much pain are you in? When we go to the doctor, the first thing we're trying to find out, how much pain is this going to cause me? When we go to the doctor, the first thing we're trying to do, can I get medication to stop the pain? I'm not saying we live a life as a masochist, but our our comfort isn't the first concern of God. We are saved. We're redeemed. Our destiny is eternal life. Our destiny is eternal life. Where there is no suffering, there are no tears. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor it has entered to the heart of man. What God has prepared for us. What we're going to is infinitely, exponentially beyond your comprehension better than what we're experiencing. And what we're experiencing was never designed to mimic what we're going to. So if we spend all of our energy trying to make what this is, what that is going to be, we've wasted it. God's called us to a life of service here and then luxury there. Service here, luxury there. If I serve here, streets of gold there. If I serve here, mansion there. If I sacrifice here, no tears there. If I'm in pain here, no pain there. Amen? What bothers you? Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying for the God of heaven. Your concern reveals your priorities. God is never overlooking suffering. God never overlooked suffering. He saw it all the way back at the beginning in Exodus chapter three, verse seven. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me. Have I also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them? And did you know what God did right after he said this? He called a man to do something about it. He didn't just say, I see it. There's nothing I can do about it. He didn't just say, I see it, and then, and then wait, poof, it's over. No, he saw it and then called somebody to move towards it and do something about it. Moses, do something about this. Moses, in, the, in front of the burning bush, uniquely positioned, uniquely gifted, uniquely equipped to go do something about it. Now, Moses had one of the Americans, well, I'm not that good at it. I need some self-care, Lord. All right, I'll send your dumb brother Aaron with you. And see if the two of you together can't screw it up. But do you see the pattern? When God saw suffering, he picked people to fix it, to go do something about it, to, to mourn over it, but then take action. What 
bothers you. God doesn't ignore injustice. Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. You know what's going on in the temple? Sort of. So there was a special um, currency that you had to use in the temple. So if you showed up with a different type of currency, you had to do an exchange in the temple. Do you know what gets weird with money exchanging? The rate at which you exchange it. So I was just in Kenya and, and I could get 100 shillings to a dollar or I could get 114 shillings to a dollar depending on who I was exchanging it through. Now, if you're like me, I want the 114 to a dollar. Amen? So what was happening in the temple is these innocent people were walking in doing their duty offering sacrifices to God as was commanded by the law going in and these people out of convenience after all you've been traveling you've made it to the temple and that you know I understand you didn't bring any temple shackles with you that's fine I'm your man I actually have a whole business set up right here in the temple I can take care of your needs I can do the money exchange I can sell you a few pigeons and they were extorting people inside the house of God Told first service, that's why we give the coffee away, so there's no chance. I want anybody standing up the coffee and going, hey, it's four bucks today. <laughs> well, it was three dollars last Sunday, I know, you know, inflation. <laughs> and then a dollar ends up in their pocket, you know. I don't trust everybody in here. They were extorting people in the temple. What does Jesus do? He doesn't walk by and go, hey man, you know, life is tough sometimes. You got to really pay attention to these money changers. He does something about it. Now, I'm not saying going to Walmart, start flipping over tables because of inflation. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying here. You're in front of the news. Hey, my pastor told me to do something about the injustice. I'm down here at Walmart making it right. It's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is God doesn't overlook it. God doesn't overlook it. And so my question to you is when you see suffering and injustice, do you have a, do you even have a response? Do we even have a response anymore? Is there, is there a, is there some, is there enough of the spirit of God in us to trigger? This is not right. This is, this is not a good thing. This somebody should do something about this. So I want to offer you the first step. And this may seem out of place, but I need you to lean into this part. Nehemiah hears from his brother, this is a condition of Jerusalem. It's still in bad shape, bro. And, and it's just torn down. It's, it's sickening. It's dangerous. There's no prosperity. It's not the way God wants it. Nehemiah starts praying and fasting for multiple days, multiple days. And then we get an insight into what he was praying. I believe some of the reason we don't know the action to take is because of the sin in our life. Can I, can I just be, I know some of you are visiting and you thought patriotic, safe. So we're going to talk about sin a little bit. So just buckle your seatbelt. If there is sin in my life, I'm probably not going to hear God correctly. It's like, Sin is like a muffle on the voice of God. And he didn't put it there, we did. 
Sin is like a muffle on the voice of God. So if there's sin in our lives and we're going, oh, I heard about this. I don't know what I should do. And, and we haven't repented of that sin. We haven't made it right with God. Then, then God sounds like this. The reason Nehemiah could hear God so well in response to suffering was because he had cleaned it up with God. And listen, it's really easy, actually. It just means I can't be prideful about my circumstance anymore. Because pridefulness and compassion don't never live in the same house. Amen? Pridefulness and compassion don't live together very well. Trust me, my wife lives with me. Compassion, prideful. She's trying to work on me. Here's what Nehemiah does. God, we mess this up. It's on us. The nation of Israel got this all wrong. He's confessing sin for the whole country. He's saying, we broke your laws. We broke your commands. We went against everything you told us to do. Way back in Deuteronomy, Moses told us to make sure it was right. And we didn't. And so we broke this. And then he made it personal. He says, as a matter of fact, not just we, I. I broke your law. I was, I was some of the reason. Me and my father, my family was part of the problem here. Oh. You see, we can never expect to hear enough of God's voice to do something about it if we don't get that relationship right. Now, I don't know your personal lives, but here's a good rule of thumb. Just clean it up every day. Keep it clean. Start in the morning. Some, some of us can sin at night. We don't even know it. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> Start in the morning with the confidence that you've been made whole. I don't care how much sleep you got. You can be made whole every morning. Amen. And then before you lay your head down at bed at night, say, God, cleanse, cleanse me. This is what I know I did today. This is what I know I did today. And I just need you to forgive me of this. And then you will be able to hear, you'll be able to test and know the perfect will of God, the Bible says. So how do you even get to the place of movement? How do you even get to the place where you're going to do something about it? You have to be able to hear from God. God doesn't need vigilantes. He needs people that hear his voice. And so we need to hear from God. So there's an important lesson to be learned in American culture right now about this. Nehemiah did not blame anyone else. Do you hear me? Nehemiah didn't blame anyone else. He said, we did it. We did it. Here's what the church did over the last 50 years. We blame politics. Because we said, if they would pass better laws, we'd have a better culture. Oh, I'm getting in it now. Everybody's quiet. That's what we did. If we passed better laws, they, we'd have a, we blamed it on politics. And then what happened was the church became less moral and more political. The church, the, the moral authority in the world, the church, the moral authority in the world, we delegated that authority to politics, to one of the most immoral activities you could do politics. 
We said, if you guys can keep track of the moral thing, we'll be calm. And what we got for it was no morality and more politics. And then politics crept into the church and we had no morality and then political divisions in the church. So Nehemiah's example is we can't blame anyone else. Politicians do what they do. If you're a politician in here, love you. But politicians do what they do. There is no one else to blame but us. The first step in moving is to accept responsibility. Is to say, God, this was us. This was me. This was actually me and my family were part of this. This was our responsibility. We didn't step up. This was a sin in my life. I should have been, like, I've read your word. I know what it says, and I didn't adhere to it. And now I'm, now I'm, now it's my fault. Stop pointing the finger anywhere else. There is no laws that politicians can pass to make people moral. It can't happen. It only comes through new life in Christ that morality happens. Okay. All right. So he accepts responsibility. But then he takes us a step further. He gets back in front of the king. For the first time in his career of being the cupbearer, he's sad. The king takes notice of it. What's wrong with you? You're not sick. Like, what, what, what's happening? It's obviously you're not sick, so it must be something. It's supposed to be a, you are concerned about something, Nehemiah. Come on, tell me what it is. Now, evidently, this was an area that Nehemiah had not traveled in very often. Because I like the way he writes it. I like the way he says it. He says, okay, I was scared. I was afraid. Because the king's asking me something personal now. He doesn't want us to know if the wine's okay. He's asking me what's causing me to be upset. So now I've let down my guard a little bit. Now in front of him, I've been sad. And that's a barrier I've never broken. So now we're in territory I'm not familiar with. So it says Nehemiah is afraid. What's going on? I didn't think it was that obvious. Here's what's going on. You know where I came from? You know the... You know, you know, they built the temple, you know, the, the walls, the walls are still in disarray. It's still torn down. It's still not good. People, it's in dangerous. It's, this is not, pro, man, it's just, it's a bad deal. What do you want me to do about it? I don't think he expected that response because here's how I know he didn't res- expect that response. It says, Nehemiah prayed to God. I think he did one of these. Oh God, quietly in his head. He didn't say it out loud. He's just like, oh man, I'm in it now, Lord. You got to help me now. Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, the most powerful force in the world, just asked him, what do you want to do about it? The guy that could decide whether he lives, dies, gets promoted, is in poverty. The, the guy that it can an instant decide everything about Nehemiah's life from that day forward. Now, all of a sudden, he's asking Nehemiah, what do you want to do about it? And Nehemiah's, God, help me now. Remember, he had cleaned it up. 
Remember, he had confessed. Remember, there was a clear communication. Do you know what? When you're in clear communication with God, when those moments pop up, you can go, God, I need you right now. That's the benefit of being in a good relationship with him all the time. Because there's sometimes you don't have time to confess. Amen? So Nehemiah did not, uh, did not have the opportunity in front of Artaxerxes to go, hey, wait a second, I need to confess what I did last night. Boy, it was a woo. And I need to hear from God for a little bit. No, if you stay right with God, he could talk to you in those moments. If you stay right with him, he could talk to you. So now Nehemiah is in the position. He's in the right position with God, and he's in the right position with the king. And the king says, what do you want to do about it? Lord, I need your help right now. If it's, If the king sees fit, send me. Did he just say that? Send me. Do you know what he was trading? He was trading absolute security. I'm I'm sure he had a 401k or a pension or something. I mean, he had a retirement plan. He probably had sick days saved up. He probably, you know, he probably was working the system. He probably had it all worked out. This is a good job. He never had to worry about anything. He's eating food. He's there with the king. He's got, he's got access, clearance, the whole nine yards. And the words that come out of his mouth is send me. I can imagine the king going, you know what? Are you sure? You just told me it was dangerous. You just told me it was all broke down. You just told me it was in disarray. You just told me they weren't organized. You just told me all the bad things about this sin, sin to you. Is that what you want? You sure you want to go? Send me. Send me. Can I tell you one other thing that Satan has tricked us into? There has never been a social media post that has fixed suffering. doesn't exist. But do you see what happens? Desensitizing, self-care. Now the solution to suffering is to tweet. Now the solution to suffering is to post a picture. Now the solution to suffering is to repost somebody else's concern. The solution is something that doesn't require anything of us. The solution is something that I don't have to move from a safe place to a dangerous place. The solution, the solution is something that I don't have to, I don't have to change my lifestyle. The solution is something that I can do, I can do in the house, on the couch, laying on the beach. I, I'm concerned. Did you hear about the latest? Yeah, I tweeted about it. So concerned. Hashtag so concerned. James chapter four, verses one through three says this, what causes quarrels and, f- and what causes fights among you? Is it not that, not this, that your passions are at war within you, you desire and do not have you, mur- so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, you do not, you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. That mentality has convinced the church that tweeting about something fixes it. The reason we quarrel is because we're not focused on suffering, but we're focused on ourselves. The reason we fight is not because we are hearing God's voice, but because we're concerned about our own comfort. I don't have what you have. And how did you get it? You don't deserve it. And I should have it. 
Well, the truth of the matter is, we all have too much. Some of you are like, wait a second. God has not overlooked suffering, but he may overlook a church that won't address it. God never overlooks suffering. He is looking for a group of people who will address it. And our example is Nehemiah when he said, I got a sweet gig here, king, but if you would send me, I'll go. I'll do something about it. I'll do something about it. I'll make something happen. Pray and move. The church needs a wholesale mindset shift. We can't be solely focused on our personal happiness and well-being and at the same time take, take a selfless action. It, they're, they're incongruent. We need the very mind of Christ. Paul wrote to the Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Stand to your feet. We're going to end with this. The answer to suffering always will include sacrifice and suffering. There's no way around it. If you, if God put it in your heart to fix something, it will always require something of you and it will always include some amount of pain. There is no other way to do it. So Paul writes this to Philippians chapter two, having this mind among yourselves, this is the way we should be thinking right now. Not about self-care, but the way Jesus thought, having this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. You know what he said there? Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us, the very image of God on the earth. He was God, fully God. But yet when he came to earth, he didn't go, hey, all y'all get out of my way, man, I'm God. And I deserve certain things here and I won't wash my own feet. I'm not washing your feet. You stink. I'm not dealing with this anymore. I should have security 24-7. I should have a big palace. He didn't take anything that he could have. The next words were from Paul. He emptied himself. Emptied himself. To the point of being a servant. All the way to the point of death. Church, there is no way. Listen, we have been duped. There is no way to spread a real gospel through prosperity. This just doesn't exist. We've tried it in every country on the planet and it just creates cults. The way to, to fix suffering is for someone to go and suffer. Jesus fixed us was not with prosperity, but with suffering to the point of death on the cross. So Paul's writing the Philippians saying, hey, think the same way. When you hear about something, when you when you see something, when you see an injustice, when you see suffering, if it moves you, let the Spirit of God then move you, whatever that looks like. I'm not saying you got to buy a plane ticket and fly all over the planet, but I'm saying in your community, in your job, where your kids go to school, where you shop, if you see and suffer, see suffering, then say, God, send me, let me do something about it. And here's the truth of the matter. If Nehemiah was equipped, then we are far more equipped to handle this. We are the freest people on the planet. If you have a U.S. passport, you can go anywhere you want without question. If we are the richest people the world has ever known, we are uniquely equipped. We have more Bible than anybody on the planet. We are uniquely equipped to deal with the world's suffering. 
we got to get our minds off of this. We got to be willing to walk straight up to the cross and suffer the way Jesus did. We got to be willing to put our needs, our wants down, our self-care down and say, that's worth me sacrificing. And start saying, God, just send me. I don't, everybody else go think this is crazy. Send me. Send me, whatever it is, send me into that neighborhood. Send me into that job. Send me into that place. Send me to that country. Send me, Lord. Because the worst thing the American church could do is take for granted the freedom and prosperity he's given us and spend it on ourselves. The world is waiting for us to take advantage of what he's given us and do something about injustice and suffering. Amen. Can we pray that way this morning? I want to pray a calling of God over your life. I'm praying that you can hear him clearly today. Hear him. Hear what he's saying to you. Father, we ask you to clear our minds. Forgive us of our sin. Wipe us clean today, Lord. So that we can hear your voice called. You have not overlooked one ounce of suffering or injustice. You are begging the church to do something about it. And so we say today, Lord, send us. Send us. Send us wherever it is. Send us, Lord. Let us hear from you. Each individual in the room, let us hear from you what that calling looks like. And send us, Lord. You prepared us for this day. Send us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Come on, can you give him honor and glory this morning? He is good to us. Hear the word of the Lord today. Go do it. Enjoy your weekend. We'll see you back here next week. Turn.